Over time, chronic sleep deficits are associated with um, higher levels of chronic disease, with potentially, it looks like, a greater risk of neurodegenerative or brain diseases, you know, things like Alzheimer's and dementias. And of course, chronic sleep deficits also, in the shorter run, are you know, have a significant impact on your ability to perform at work. Welcome back to another episode of the Not Almost There podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura. That was Alex Peng, who you just heard from, who's an academic PhD who started his career studying people, technologies, and the worlds they make. Since 2000, Alex has worked as a technology forecaster and futurist, helping companies understand new tech and global trends and their strategic and business implications. Alex is the author of a few great books, and this is how I found him from The Distraction Addiction, which deals with technology addiction and distraction. By the way, I love your descriptive titles, Alex. A book called Shorter, which is about doing more with less, and Rest, which we dive into today a lot. We talk about how you can get more done when you give yourself ample rest, and don't worry, we really dive into what that means. It's probably not what you think, and also in this episode, we take a deeper look into the work week, employee burnout, and how our perception of productivity needs to be completely reconstructed. Alex leaves us with great actionable tips on how to take planned breaks from intense work to enhance your creativity and capacity. But for now, let's get right into it, put on those shoes, go for a walk or run, or better yet, just rest as we explore the mind of Alex Pang. Why is rest so important and just as important as work in some cases, but it's often something that we don't, we don't talk about or we don't feel it's as important as work or getting outcomes that we're striving for? Right. So um, as for the question of why rest is important, I think that um, there, were, there were two answers. The, you know, the first and most obvious one is that Rest is essential as a source of, you know, sort of restoration, as an opportunity to recharge the mental and physical batteries that we spend um, at work, you know, dealing with children, um, you know, managing the complexities of life under a pandemic and sort of normal life, you know, and so, and, you know, generally sort of uh, recovering the energy we need in order to, you know, in order to be good people. more specifically, though, for people who are, you know, who are ambitious, who see themselves as high achievers or who aspire to be high achievers, rest plays a hidden but really essential role in their success. Because, and, uh, because number one, um, the right kinds of rest provide a kind of wellspring for creative thinking, a kind of spring, uh, sort of uh, playground in which your creative mind can try out new ideas, can think through different possibilities, and can potentially solve problems that elude your, you know, uh, elude your conscious effort. Um, you know, I think we all have the experience of, you know, trying, to, you know, you're trying to remember 
the name of that actor who was in the movie and the TV show and the other thing and they can't, you know, and, and you struggle oh, that yeah. you can't, you know, and then three minutes later you're folding laundry or emptying the dishwasher <laughs> and all of a sudden their name pops into your head, right? Oh, right. That was Chris Helmsworth. Well, that's, you know, that's a very trivial but everyday version of something that our minds are really, really good at, which is continuing to work on problems even when our conscious attention is elsewhere. Um, you know, our minds really don't like to leave these things unsolved. And so they go back to them when there are kind of few spare processor cycles when we're doing something relatively cognitively low intensity. And so that's where, you know, that's where that, uh, that kind of sort of experience comes from. The thing is that so far as we can tell, you know, the mechanisms by which we remember uh, who was in Thor and also in extraction um, are also the same cognitive mechanisms that we use for solving really serious problems, whether they are, you know, sort of compli- you know, trying to figure out sort of uh, the, the last step in some scientific theory, um, whether it's a business strategy, whether it's, you know, some difficult challenge at work. And so giving you know, creating space in your day for periods where your creative mind can think about those problems makes it more likely that you will be able to solve them. And so super creative people, you know, who have a lot of freedom over their time, a lot of control over their schedules, will actually design their days to kind of build in periods of downtime, usually after some really intensive few hours of work, so that they, you know, so that number one, you know, they get to get up and stretch and get a break from, you know, simply being at their desks. But second, um, by doing so immediately after periods of intensive work, you've still got all these, you know, questions and short-term variables and things kind of running around in your head. And the odds of being able to come up with a solution to a problem are greater in those, you know, in those minutes and hours immediately after that hard work. And so that's why there's value in working rest into your daily schedule rather than assuming that it's something that you should reserve for, you know, that cool two-week vacation that you take once a year. So, you know, and so because of this, you know, because our subconscious is so good at working on problems that elude our sort of conscious uh, solution, um, that's why working rest into your daily, uh, daily schedule has or of immediate value for you as a creative or knowledge worker or whatever. There's also really good evidence that um, people who rest regularly, whether it's on a daily basis, taking vacations, preserving their weekends, live longer, are healthier, are less prone to heart disease and dementias and other things than people who um, are constant workaholics. As for why it is that this is something whose value we underestimate, there are a couple answers. And one is that it's really, you know, until very recently, we didn't really understand very much about the mechanisms that are of connected work and rest, and in particular connected creative problem solving that involved conscious effort versus problem solving that happened when our minds were sort of, uh, were we're working on other things. Um, you know, we all experience those kinds of aha moments, but they had always seemed kind of mysterious. 
and the role of downtime hadn't really been understood until recently. You know, and then there are a thousand and one kind of cultural and normative or professional reasons why we think of rest as something that, you know, we do after we're successful or that um, we should sort of, uh, that we avoid, um, avoid doing very publicly because, you know, either because we are in professions where um, sort of demonstrating, demonst you know, long hours serve as a demonstration of your passion and your commitment, um, or because, um, you know, all our friends are working this way. And so, you know, we tend to, you know, and we pick up cues from them. Or if you're in, you know, the kind of job where, you know, that's highly competitive, um, it's a great strategy for showing that you are, you know, a committed, dedicated employee and that you should be kept around and promoted. So for all of, so, you know, for all of those reasons, we tend to downplay or, or uh, underestimate the value of rest, despite the fact that in creative lives, it plays this really critical role of sort of restoration of sort of inspiration and of making our lives and our work sort of um, better and more sustainable. So that's why. That makes a, a lot of sense. And to unpack rest, I know in, in the book you talk about deep play, you talk about sleep and naps, you talk about vacation. One of the things that I found interesting and I find that works for me personally and I know other, other folks it works for as well is breaking up your day into some unorthodox way. And you give some great examples that I'd like for you to dive into a little bit more in the book with regards to Darwin and Hemingway. Mm -hmm. And we can learn a lot from history and the success of some of these, some of these folks over time. What mm -hmm. is, is there one of those historical figures that stand out to you that is like the model for this or, mm -hmm. you know, um, I certainly have my own favorites. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, that, uh, and one of the things that's really clear from this work is that everybody's got to figure out the particular model that works best for them. And indeed that works for them at this stage in their lives, right? You know, your energy levels, you know, your, how much sleep you need, these change a lot over the course of your life. Um, and so, you know, a, and so an ideal solution when you're 25 is probably not going to be the same as an ideal solution when you're 40 and you've got a couple kids and, you know, when, uh, you know, sort of, and, and also the nature of your work has changed. However, when you look across a whole bunch of creative lives, and I'm talking about like Nobel prize winners and famous writers and composers, and even some, you know, even some generals that you find that, um, what these, what these people will do is, first of all, um, like I said earlier, they layer periods of work and rest in their days. And they do that partly for restoration and partly for the kind of creative stimulus. They also will do their hardest work kind of first in the day you know, very often getting up super early to write or sort of, uh, you know, or whatever, um, at like five or 6 AM and they do, and they'll schedule about four hours or five hours of really intensive work. And that's when the bulk of what they do, you know, the bulk of their work and their creative thinking happens. So, and 
that four to five hours number is really consistent, whether you're talking about like mathematicians or, you know, or, or, you know, or novelists or, you know, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. And it seems like most people are capable of about four really serious hours of concentrated cognitive work per day, day in and day out. Um, you know, the model in college where, you know, you work super, super hard, you know, before finals, you know, you're studying 12 hours a day. That's something you can sustain for brief periods. But if you want to have a good career, you want to do really good work. Um, it's not really the model that, uh, that, uh, that works over the long run. So layering periods of serious work, doing that and setting aside times when you are best able when you're at your kind of maximum sort of creativity and energy level, which tends for most people to be in the mornings, either because of their circadian rhythms. Mo more of us are early risers than late risers or night owls, first of all. And second, because if you buy the idea that you have a, you kind of have a finite amount of energy and attention and decision-making power throughout the day, which is slightly controversial, but, you know, kind of tracks with, with I think, a lot of our own sort of everyday experiences. Um, doing your biggest work first in an environment where you're able to concentrate hardest makes a lot of intuitive sense. So, you know, whether you are, you know, Darwin or Beethoven or Einstein, you know, early morning, four to five hours worth of work, the bulk of the stuff, you know, the bulk of, of your work gets done. And then you kind of switch gears and you spend a couple hours working in the garden, going on a long walk, doing other kinds of apparently unproductive things that give your body a chance to recharge, but while also giving that creative subconscious a chance to keep working on problems, even while, you know, your mind is elsewhere. And then you might have a couple ideas about, you know, Maybe if I approach the problem this way, or there's this transition that I can use in this movement, and you go and you write that down, that's like another hour or so in the afternoon, and then you're pretty much done for the day. And working in that manner steadily is what allowed you know, Darwin to write The Origin of Species, you know, Beethoven to do the Fifth Symphony, you know, um, Hemingway to write As the Bell Tolls, and it is, and also allowed all of them to have much longer kind of creative lives than they would had they, you know, sort of, uh, had they worked in the kind of crazy all-out, you know, sort of manner that characterizes so many of our professional and entrepreneurial lives today. So, you know, but, and I think that that basic model of thinking about when in the day you are at your own kind of peak, your own kind of creative and energetic peak, taking that time, really, you know, sort of ring fencing it so that nothing else is allowed to intrude in it, um, using it to work on your most important problems, setting aside time in your schedule during the day for, you know, or for serious breaks, whether it's a walk or CrossFit or yoga or something else. Um, those things are, I think, essential for, um, you know, for doing really great work, for doing really sort of 
for creative work, and I think also for making you know for making work more sustainable. Yeah, I think the sustainability is a key thing, right? If you yeah. know tomorrow you're going to have to spend eight hours behind a computer, behind your desk, and virtual meetings, it's wearing. Just thinking about it, it's Absolutely. one thing to get through a day, but the next day, um, the uh, the crazy thing about all of this is McKinsey did a study I read a few years ago, and they dove deep into how much productivity you're actually getting out of an employee per day. It equates to like three hours, like mm-hmm. if that. So if you right. think about it, what are you doing with the rest of the time? You're just kind of there. <laughs> you're mm-hmm. just, you know, you're existing versus like, okay, if you can really focus your four hours, you'll actually get 20 to 25% more productivity out of designing your day in an unorthodox way versus just following the nine to five that society has kind of taught us um, over time and and you're not going to get as much out. Exactly. You know, it's also worth noting that that, that that nine to five is very much a 19th century kind of industrial model of, you know, of work where, you know, you show up at the factory and you're doing the same, the same job from, you know, start to finish, you know, you're sort of assembling this widget or, you know, twisting this bolt or, you know, or what have you. And that there is no variability in sort of, you know, in the kind of mix of things that you're doing. Um, And the other assumption is that in order to get people to do more, what you do, you either, you know, speed up the factory line or you extend the length of the day. And cognitive work, creative work, knowledge work, these all work quite differently, right? There are really hard limits on how much extra labor you can extract from people before you burn them out. Um, it's also the case that creative work is very susceptible to, you know, fluctuations in our circadian rhythms. Uh, we are able to do a lot more when we're at our peak than we are than when we are at our lows. And so, you know, I think that the that you know, if you were starting with a blank sleep, a slate, blank sheet of paper and you're asking in a knowledge economy, how would you design the workday? It would not look like the conventional nine to five. Um, it also, you know, the other thing that's that's uh, uh, that uh, that you would look at is not just kind of internal factors, human factors, and how they relate to how we work. We'd also think differently about our environments as well, and how much time we would schedule for things like meetings and when we would schedule them. Right? That McKinsey study and virtually every other study of you know time spent in the workplace, you know, identifies meetings as a huge, basically a huge time sink. Um, Meetings are necessary, but they tend to be overly long. They have too many people. They're too meandering. I'm not saying anything that, uh, you know, that, uh, that most of us haven't experienced. And indeed, you know, what we find is that um, people lose something like between two and four hours of potentially productive time per day before COVID anyway, to overly long meetings, distraction, um, you know, interruptions, people coming by with one quick question that turns into a 10 minute mm. conversation that, you know, requires then another 10 minutes for you to kind of get back on track on sort of what you were, what you were working on before the interruption. And 
you know, when you're able to get a handle on those things, you can get amazing increases in productivity. And indeed, doing that allows you to do things like move an entire company to a four-day week where, you know, people are still able to do the same amount of work. You're serving customers, you're just as profitable as, you know, as you were before, but you get all the work done in four days rather than in five. So, you know, the bottom line is that there are lessons here that are not just for individuals, but there also are really important lessons for organizations as well. So let's take this smaller chunk of focus time, yeah. whether it's four days a week, five days a week. One of the things that I've, I heard you say that it's really profound and a different way to think about things is, uh, I think it was a quote from someone and you would you would know as soon as I say it, but you're, you can get more done by in a week by focusing on one thing a day mm-hmm. than focusing on a bunch of problems that you're going to try and solve over a week, meaning that right. four hour period, if you're focused and you're like, I'm going to knock this out, I'm going to put a lot of attention to it and then move on and focus on the next thing, you're, you're going to be far more ahead with, without putting in those eight hours being scattered. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think that there were, there's, there's a lot of evidence that, um, sort of, uh, you know, that one unit of focus time, let's say one hour, you know, is worth about four hours of semi-distracted, semi-structured time. Now, in order to, you know, in order to make that valuable, you need a couple things, right? You need to have, you basically need, you know, a purpose or goal or, you know, clarity about what it is that you ought to be working on. Um, number two, you need conditions that support focused work, you know, which can be quiet for some people. It can be music blasting through headphones for others. But, you know, you need, uh, you need some kind of support that helps you get into kind of the fl- uh, sort of, you know, into sort of into flow or help you get into, you know, kind of deep work, as Cal Newport says. The other thing that's really important is to have um, a social environment and other people who share with you the recognition that this is really important, right? You know, my ability to concentrate in the office depends a lot on my colleagues' ability to respect my time, to recognize that there's value in working in this way, and for you know, and to recognize that we all should pursue this. We should all set aside time to work in this manner, and that if we do so, we will all be a lot more productive and a lot happier than if we, you know, sort of if we allow the workplace to be a kind of, you know, the sort of carnival of distractions that. Um, all too often it becomes. So, yeah. So, you know, basically um, focus good and other focused people really, really good. Who is doing it right currently or in this environment? I know you consult with a lot of companies and mm-hmm. you you live in essentially Silicon Valley still, I believe. Yep. And you've you've been there for for decades. Have you seen companies embrace this? And what are the outcomes from an employee satisfaction, from an output standpoint, just overall? Right. Okay. So um, there are what the business literature and the literature on workplace happiness tells us is that giving people opportunity, giving more control over their work days, more control over their time 
make helps people be happier at work, feel that their work is more meaningful, they have greater sense of, you know, autonomy, etc. Um, so, you know, first of all, giving people a little more control over their schedules has those kinds of benefits pretty much no matter where you are. As for organizations that are, you know, that I think are in the lead in terms of recognizing the value of rest, designing strategies that take advantage of it in order to get better performance for the entire organization and better performance and among employees and happier employees. You know, the, um, I would look to the companies that have moved to four day weeks because they are places that have that, you know, really have to do this right. Right. In order to, you know, if you if you're going to get the same work done and have everyone leave by the end of day Thursday, um, you know, that puts a lot that creates a great incentive for organizations to tighten up their processes, to tighten up their schedules, to figure out how to use meetings more effectively, use technology better. And within this, um, I think that the you know, the couple examples for me that really come to mind, um, Perpetual Guardian in New Zealand, which is one of the first companies to pioneer the four-day, you know, sort of a, a four-day work week, um, I think offers and you know and they've they have studied their own their own daily calendars and schedules pretty extensively i think they offer a really nice example um there is you know one of my favorites is a company in the uk called flock that divides the day into red time amber time and green time and red time is heads down focused work you know, and that happens first thing in the morning and, and then in uh, – or even then in the afternoon. Amber time is for meetings. It's for time with clients. And then green time is social time. And they're really, really explicit about when you're in this one versus, uh, versus the other. And the virtue of that is that while it sounds – you know, it sounds kind of regimented and almost sort of childish. And in fact, um, the founder of the company was previously an elementary school teacher. So he, you know, and so he, he says, makes sense. yeah, exactly. And he, you know, he says that sort of this was inspired partly by his experience as a teacher, but you know, what it, I think what it teaches us is first of all, that kind of regularity turns out to have benefits over the long run for sort of uh, for individuals but also that when everybody is following that kind of schedule together you get a kind of multiplier effect that is uh, that you know you can't get when everyone is is sort of trying to do this on their own you know i think we all have that experience of having to you know escape to the cafe downstairs or you know work at home when we need to really get stuff done and it illustrates the ways in which you know very you know the uh, the modern office often is a place that you know where where we work despite the negative effect it can have on our productivity and our you know and our ability to concentrate and so i think that these companies offer a really nice model both of what these kinds of daily schedules can look like but also why Crafting these schedules for everybody turns out to have really great benefits that go well beyond um, what each individual enjoys, you know, uh, 
enjoys as you know as as singular economic sort of uh, sing, uh, units or as people. So when when you are working with either retail mm-hmm. or companies like mine that support retail and you have to have client service folks on, mm-hmm. you recommend finding sort of flexible work hours within those jobs or how does that break down? There are a couple ways that companies will do this. Um, one of them is, so um, government services, for example, uh, will often, if they're moving, if they're reducing working hours for sort of for public sector workers, um, will go from, let's say, a 40-hour week to a 30-hour week, but they'll actually, but um, they will implement six-hour shifts. So, and then actually keep the offices open longer. So you've got fewer people in the office at any given time, but, you know, as far as the public is concerned, you know, your public face is now open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. rather than from 9 to 5. So you're actually more accessible to, uh, to the public at large, even while you're reducing working hours for individuals. You know, and then in, let's say, you know, places that run their own um, customer service lines or, you know, call centers, generally what they will do either is have a rota like that or if it's, you know, or if after looking at your, you know, your inbound in- inquiries and discovering really that they are spread out fairly evenly across the five days, um, stagger shifts so that some people will be Monday through Thursday and some will be Tuesday through Friday. One of, and... One of the important things there, though, is actually looking, you know, not assuming that you really do have to be on the phones 24-7 or, you know, five days, uh, five days a week, actually looking at uh, your, you know, your, uh, your inbound calls, your sort of, you know, your tickets and seeing, you know, are there patterns where there really are days where not very much happens, and every now and then you find that you know that uh, that there are these big kinds of natural rhythms in the sort of in the work week that you know that you might not have paid much attention to or previously. Um, there's a there's a B two B call center in uh, in Glasgow um, that moved to a four day week. After re- after dis- realizing that ninety percent of its sort of uh, its staff made their weekly sales quotas by the end of day Thursday, that you know basically, and this is a place that sells like um, sort of computer services to other companies, and so basically what they found was that very few buying decisions actually were being made on a Friday anyway, and so rather than trying to, let's say, expand Friday hours or make more calls on Fridays, it made more sense to actually try and train people up so that they could be a little faster Monday through Thursday, and they were a lot more likely to hit their weekly quotas then, and you could then give everybody Friday off and you know, or and still be just as profitable as you had been before. So you know, paying attention, looking a little more deeply into sort of the rhythm of the work and the and sort of how your customers behave um, can sometimes 
also yield insights that give you, you know, that give you some clues about how you can most how you can most effectively work in downtime or even eliminated day from sort of uh, from your daily or your weekly schedule. For the the listeners, before we get too much further into this, because it's super fascinating, how did you get involved in Rust? I know you were a futurist in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley for a long time, but what was the catalyst to make you start thinking about this in a different way? Right. And, and then write about it. Yeah. So, you know, I really first appreciated this um, when I w- about 10 years ago when I was on a sabbatical at Microsoft Research Cambridge in the UK. And, you know, I've been working as a technology forecaster and futurist and consultant for the previous 10 years or so here in the Valley, you know, and lived for years with that sense of always being kind of half a project behind, never having enough time, you know, of always struggling to keep up with stuff. And, you know, this is a, it's a, it's a field where there's always more to learn. There's always a little bit more quality that you can deliver to clients, a little bit more stuff that you can do. And that really adds up over time. So, um, I was near, you know, I was near the point of burning out. I had the opportunity to kind of take a step back and go to Microsoft and, um, to, and to join one of their research groups there. And about six weeks into it, I had this epiphany where my wife, where I realized I was getting all kinds of amazing stuff done. I was reading a ton. Like I was, you know, I felt super productive, but I didn't feel the kind of time pressure that I, that was just part of everyday life here in California. And it started me thinking that, you know, maybe our assumptions about the relationship between you know, working hours and output and productivity and creativity. You know, the assumption that in order to be a success, you have to work heroically, titanically long hours that put you right on the edge of burnout or breakdown. That maybe those assumptions were completely wrong. And that in order to do the kinds of work that we really want to do and to be the people we want to be, that the sol- that we should think about how we can work effectively, but do but sort of work less rather than constantly work more, and that was the you know, that initial idea kind of ran around in my mind for a while, and eventually I realized that there were you know uh, there were a lot of other people very you know famous accomplished people who had discovered you know discovered this idea on their own and had put it into practice and so once i realized that and i saw that there was a body of scientific work in the psychology of creativity and neuroscience that helped explain why these pa- why these patterns worked why it is that working 4 hours a day and taking long vacations and making time for family turns out to be really essential for doing amazingly creative work. Once all that stuff came together, I knew I had a story that was really worth telling. And then, you know, more recently, I've discovered, you know, a bunch of companies that have put this into practice at scale for entire organizations rather than for individuals, most notably by shortening working hours for everybody. And in so doing, they managed to make available to everybody 
you know, the kinds of sort of free time and a sort of attitude towards time and productivity that characterize um, characterize the sorts of perspectives that the people I write about in Rest had discovered for themselves. So that's the kind, that's the that's the origin story for you know sort of for this uh, uh, for this whole project. And if a company has the willingness to create this kind of flexible work schedule, what is, what are best practices or things they need to do to actually have people understand that it's okay to have a flexible schedule? From right. myself personally, as a leader of a company, I care about the output, meaning mm-hmm. I care about the outcomes that they're generating. I don't, if they can do that in four hours versus eight hours, like fist bump, like, right. you know, like, it doesn't matter if you can, I used to work on an assembly line and if I could crank in, in this example, you couldn't, but if I could build 72 cars within a half hour versus an hour, like Ford wouldn't have cared, you know, right. it, it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> so I'm just curious, like what, what do people and companies need to do to get this right? Right. So, you know, um, there were a few things that everybody does very consistently. Um, first of all, make meetings a lot shorter, more pointed, more purposeful. Um, you know, every uh, sort of at every place I go into, there are artifacts or there are practices that reinforce that. So, you know, it's like reverse countdown timers that only go to twenty minutes, for example. Um, changes in uh, calendaring like systems, you know, so that the default length for a ca- for a meeting is no longer an hour, but it is twenty minutes or thirty minutes. Um, one place even has two sets of meeting rooms for external meetings with clients, and they've got some nice, comfy chairs and you know, co- you know, sort of coffee service. And then internal meetings are held at this little uncomfortable table. Because as a way of incentivizing people to just get in, do the work, and get out. So, you know, making meetings shorter, more pointed, more purposeful is sort of thing number one. Um, number two is I think, um, using technology more thoughtfully. So, you know, sort of, uh, ha- and, what th- and what that means generally is figuring out how you can use things like email, Slack, et cetera, um, not to distract people, but rather to you know, sort of uh, to help them focus better. Sometimes that's as simple as you know a little bit of email, you know, sort of email hygiene combined with um, implementing like email checks a couple times a day rather than throughout the day. The third thing is um, redesigning the workday to protect periods of focus time and to better maintain boundaries between, let's say, focused work, individual work time, collaborative time or meetings, and more social time. And, you know, whether it is red time, amber time, green time, whether it is setting aside, you know, half a day a week for, you know, project, you know, for sort of thinking about long-term stuff, whether it is a rule where you don't have meetings before, let's say, 1 p.m., um, having something like that gives people clarity about how they are able to spend their time and reduces the likelihood that there's going to be interference between 
you know, between the needs of you know, a bunch of people who, you know, who can have a meeting at this time versus a couple others sort of who would really prefer to use that part of the morning for deep work. So that kind of standardization is really valuable for preserving periods for focused work and interestingly also makes the times when you're just hanging out or you know, you're doing collaborative work also makes those more potent as well. Um, and just doing those three things, the meetings, the better tech use, um, the better design of the day of, or of, of the day gets you a long way to being able to do four days worth of work in five. Um, there is a little bit, you know, as you indicated also of kind of cultural shift that happens as well, you know, thinking it takes a little while, but you know, in most places you do see this kind of shift of mindset where you go from thinking that you know, that the really the really dedicated employees are the ones who can be at their desks for 10 or 12 hours a day to thinking more in terms of output and saying you know someone you know is it more impressive to be the person who can do this task in 4 hours or is it more impressive to be the person who needs 10 hours and the you know and the you know the the answer the answer becomes pretty self-evident when you are constructing an environment that encourages people to be thoughtful about their time to be thoughtful about everybody else's time and to look for ways to sort of maximize productivity so that you can take those time savings and you can give them back to your employees so but you know starts with meetings tech use day design. I love some of those tips, especially the reverse timer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to no, use that's, that. That's, that's exactly. Brilliant. No, those are, those are really cool. What have you learned during the pandemic? Has there been insights coming out of this? I know you're, you're pioneering and trying to bring the four hour work or the four hour, the four day week to the, to the U S but um, just curious what the, pandemic has taught us. I know for mm -hmm. me, it's taught me flexibility. It's taught me that I could have meetings while walking. I can, I can arrange my day in a different way and that I start my day earlier, uh, mm -hmm. much earlier. And I just, I find a lot of, I find that works well for me. I get the same amount of, of output and, and uh, generate the same results as I would otherwise, if not more. So I'm just curious, what else have you seen? Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that I have seen is, you know, companies going remote and then discovering that the work that you've got to do in order to make remote work a success, right? Figuring out how to, you know, do meetings differently, um, have sort of better production project or project management systems, you know, sort of making that layer run well so that people who previously had been all together in an office are capable of doing the same work even you know when they're when they're spread out potentially across time zones that that work ought, serves as a kind of foundation for sort of moving to a shorter work week you know all of the companies that I've looked at who've moved to a four-day week during the pandemic have done so after discovering that their technology, uh, of, uh, technology enables it. Um, I think we also have learned that 
flexibility can be a really powerful thing if it's used well. Um, I mean, I think we need, you know, we've, we've discovered that we need to be thoughtful both in our own lives and in organizations about how we can bring, bring in flexibility in a way that helps that, you know, does not come at the expense of organizational goals or social cohesion. Um, but I think that the, you know, the challenge going forward is to figure out how to make that work as opposed to figuring out how to cram people back into the office from nine to five from Monday through Friday. I think that, you know, the cat is now out of, you know, out of the bag, despite what, you know, you know, despite what folks on Wall Street or you know investment banks may sort of may want to the contrary, I think also that we've learned some stuff about how valuable offices actually are when they work well. You know that there really there really are kinds of work that are super difficult to do at home by oneself, and that you know cons- and you know that there is. Uh, there is tacit knowledge that we possess when we are together that um, we can, you know, we can draw upon and operationalize in ways that are difficult to do when you're talking to people just over a screen. Um, there's a lot of, you know, informal social cues and physical stuff that does not make it, or of, you know, from or of from one screen to another that enables a level of collaboration and a sort of smoothness in work in sort of working together that, you know, sort of that really can only happen when you are, you know, when people are, are, are in the same place. I think also that, you know, that sort of for younger people who are sort of learning how to be professionals or who are still mastering sort of mastering skills of their craft that, you know, uh, we now see how valuable it is to be among others when we're trying to do that. And so I think that the, you know, that, uh, that, you know, trying to, you know, replace that stuff with, you know, like online mentoring programs or something more formal um, is a step in the right direction, but I think it can never quite replace you know, the sort of the the experience of you know being in the same room with someone who is really really expert at you know at what you want to learn how to do and seeing how they do it. So um, that's what I think we've learned. Yeah, and I'm, I'm right there with you. At the end of my days, the last thing I want—I don't care who's on the other the other end of that Zoom screen—is another virtual meeting. Yeah. You know, and having an in-person meeting, feeling that energy in a different way, uh, I I think is sorely missed. I mean, at least from me. Um, and I'm looking forward to to getting back to some of that. The we talked about people and kind of like more morning rituals. People that wake up early, like myself. What about for night owls, people that don't wake up early, how can they arrange their day to get the most out of it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that the, the challenge is to, is to figure out sort of when you are at your kind of creative and energetic peak and to set that time aside for, sort of for, for your most important work. So if that starts at, you know, sort of 9 or 10 a.m. rather than at, you know, 6 a.m., you know, or if it starts at 4 p.m., Whatever, um, or uh, that, you know, your uh, or of your task 
your task is to sort of be, you know, is to be really thoughtful with yourself about what works for you now and to try to design a day that sort of, that maximizes that. The other thing I will say is that, you know, humans, humans are not quite as good as we might expect at intuiting that. You know, I am, I am someone who, you know, in college, um, you know, was, I was one of those people who, you know, started, you know, started homework after, you know, the, after the evening news. And so you know, very often, <laughs> yeah, you know, very often I was up until, you know, or, you know, going to, going to bed at 2 a.m. was generally a pretty good, you know, a pretty good night for me. Um, and I just kind of, you know, I assumed that's like, you know, how I worked best. And, you know, it was, it was not how I worked best. It was how I worked when I was 19, which is not the same thing. But, you know, discovering, and it took me, when I started experiment, experimenting with a morning routine, it took me a few weeks to really kind of get into that rhythm. But I find that even though I would not call myself an early, you know, sort of a volunteer or natural early riser, that there is still amazing value to having that practice and having that routine for me. And indeed, there's some res there's research that suggests that working against chronotype, if you are doing creative work, can actually be kind of valuable because if you are, you know, ba basically if you're a night owl and you get up super early, you know, the, the working theory is that your subconscious is still kind of sort of a little bit more in the mix than sort of than it will be much later in the day. And so you are more likely to have insights or ideas that you wouldn't necessarily have or of, uh, uh, sort of later on. So I think that it's a matter of sort of uh, of of recognizing, recognizing when your peak periods are experimenting with them and, you know, or experimenting with routines that allow you to match up those periods with, you know, with your, with your key tasks. Um, now the other, you know, the obvious question is if you are, you know, the one night owl in, you know, in an office full of, you know, early risers, I think that what we find is that coordinating schedules and giving everybody the same time to like do really focused work has right now has really substantial benefits, no matter your chronotype. Um, and that figuring out how to coordinate, you know, how to really precisely fine tune that stuff for everyone is what companies will do when they want to go from four day weeks to three day weeks. And, you know, it's the, it's the next, it's the next obvious thing to try to do, but nobody is really at the organizational scale attacked that part of it yet. That's fascinating about the, the night owl to still, if you're one of those people that go to bed late, mm -hmm. you're kind of groggy in the morning, still try and get the work done your most important work done because you may benefit from that. So I think that's a really great insight, Alex. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. You know, one um, of the other, th yeah, I mean, I should I'd just add really quickly that, you know, one of the other things that is uh, really valuable for lots of people is, you know, a nap in the afternoon. And this is both for the restorative purpose, you know, a 20 minute nap can be as good as, you know, yet another cup of coffee to get you through. You got to explain to me how to do that though. If your mind's 
go in and during the day, how do you pause and take a nap? Uh, simple, simple answer is, um, you know, is practice. Number one, you're, you actually, you actually, you actually get better at falling asleep during the day. If you sort of, if you work at it for a little while, um, the second thing is, um, making sure that you do so either, f- you know, for the right period of time, which means either about 20 minutes for a cat nap or, you know, a full 90 minutes, because if you like go for 40 and you wake up in the middle of deep sleep, then you're the rest of your afternoon is going to be shot, right? You've got what they call sleep. The, the, people call it sleep inertia. Um, and so, you know, choosing, choosing the right time or the right length of time is thing. Number one, number two is, you know, this is all, this is pretty place dependent. So, you know, if you can, if you've got a place where you can lie down, um, I have a hammock being in California and mm-hmm. that's usually where I take my naps and, that's, you know, and, you know, just as with, um, sleep at nighttime, having a place that you associate with naps during the day can make it easier for you to actually get to sleep. The third thing is that even if you don't fall asleep completely, just, you know, the down, the physical downtime, closing your eyes, not having, you know, not having like the constant barrage of sort of stimulus, that itself can be more restorative than you, you know, than you might imagine. So even if you don't fall all the way asleep, um, there can, there is, there is value in taking that time and, you know, sort of, uh, and sort of, and using it for that kind of a break, whether you fall asleep or not. And you're talking 20 minutes, what would be the max? Right. 20 minutes, you know, sort of sleep cycles go about 90 minutes or so. So, you know, that means going from, you know, initial falling asleep to, um, you know, deep sleep, REM sleep, you're, you know, dreaming, and then back up into the kind of first state that you are when you first fall asleep. That's about 90 minutes or so. Uh, a full cycle, so a full cycle of that sort is probably the longest that, you know, that most of us can get away with during the day. Um, however, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the value of the 20 minute nap either as, you know, for its, uh, you know, as a, as a way of recharging and, you know, allowing your, allowing mind and body to kind of reset for the afternoon. So that's a great segue, diving deeper into sleep. Can you break down the basic stages of sleep, because I think it's important to note one of the things that I realized recently, and I'm 43 years old, I don't know why this just dawned on me, but for the majority, at least the 10, as far as I can remember back, like when I'm shaving off hours in a day, like six hours of sleep always seemed okay to me. Like I could operate on six hours. And then you mm-hmm. think about it as a percentage of the recommended eight hours of sleep, and you're kind of crushing yourself and you're losing a cycle of sleep, you're losing REM sleep. But I think to even understand that, we've got to understand the stages of sleep. Can you break yeah. down those? So you've got, um, or uh, there is kind of initial light sleep, which is the first 20 minutes or so. And then there are a couple stages of deeper sleep, right? There is, and the way that you, the way that sleep scientists measure this is changes in things like um, sort of uh, eye movement. So if you have, you know, you, you, uh, when you are 
when you're dreaming, for example, your, you know, your eyelids off, you know, you, you can, you can see people's eyes moving under their, sort of, uh, under their eyelids. Um, but basically what's going on is that in each of these different sleep cycles, you have, or parts of the sleep cycle, you have sort of different parts of the brain active and sort of also different sets of hormones are being released and, and to some degree, different levels or different kinds of repair and restorative activity that are happening. So, um, in non-REM deep sleep, most of what's going on is like physical repair. So, you know, it's sort of, uh, and then the REM sleep part is more kind of cognitive and mental. So basically if you, in, uh, and we know this because, you know, if you interrupt people's REM sleep consistently, it's harder for them to do stuff like learn new tasks and to, you know, remember, you know, remember vocabulary if they're studying a foreign language, for example. And so from that, we can see that there is, you know, it's not like, you know, it's, it, uh, there were, uh, that the body uses sleep in somewhat different ways at different points, uh, at different points in the cycle, but all of them, of course, are, you know, have really significant value. Um, there is also, you know, the eight hour sleep is a good estimate, but it's, but Nick Littlehales, who's a sleep scientist, who's worked with a bunch of sports teams and sort of other, and other sorts of high performers argues really that we should think in terms of, um, 90 minute increments and that we should think, and that the important thing is to, is to get about seven and a half hours of sleep every 24 hours. So, you know, what that, so functionally what that means is that, you know, if you are, you know, if you're a professional tennis player, you fly to another time zone, you know, you've got jet lag, what you're going to shoot for is, you know, sleeping at night for, let's say six hours and then getting a 90 minute nap or two, you know, or, or, you know a 90 minute nap sometime during the day. Right. Um, NBA players do something like this as well. There's something they, you know, you have NBA nap time, which is like between about 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. because games are in the evening. Then you go back, you have dinner and stuff. And these guys often don't get to sleep until like 3 a.m. And then you've got practice and then you've got morning practice. And so their sleep is somewhat more sort of more bifurcated. But thinking, in t but sort of the bottom line is that thinking in terms of about seven and a half hours, which is about five 90-minute cycles over the course of a 24-hour period. And that can be broken, you know, that can be one long sleep session, or it can be broken up into, you know, a couple or even three different ones, right? There are plenty of us get up in the middle of the night and you're up for a certain, you know, you're up for a little while, you can't get back to sleep. That's actually very, very common. And it used to be pretty much ubiquitous a couple hundred years ago. Um, but, you know, thinking in terms, but, you know, if you can get that body of sleep over the course of 24 hours, then you're probably going to be in, you know, in pretty good shape. What is the, the difference? So say you have a sleep deficit of 90 minutes, you're missing mm -hmm. that whole cycle over time. What kind of impediment does that cause you? Hmm. So, you know, over time, chronic sleep deficits are associated with, um, higher levels of chronic disease with potentially it looks like 
a greater risk of neurodegenerative or brain diseases, you know, things like Alzheimer's and dementias. And of course, chronic sleep deficits also in the shorter run are, you know, have a significant impact on your ability to perform at work and your, you know, even things like um, the likelihood that you will cut corners or cheat on the job if you think you can get away with it. So, you know, I think you, know, you see this most acutely in fields like medicine and law enforcement, where you know you're you have people who are under who are both under severe levels of stress and strain, who sometimes have to make decisions very very quickly, um, and there's a you know there's a really clear correlation between the likelihood that you'll commit an error either in the operating room or out in the field and your level of sleep deprivation. Um, and I think, and so, you know, and so even if, but even if you're in a job where you're not faced with those kinds of life or death decisions, um, you know, they're going to sleep deprivation is going to, you know, extract a price in the short run and in the long run, um, you know, your body is really going to resent you for it and, you know, and is going to sort of act out in the form of, you know, sort of chronic illnesses, shortened lifespan, um, lower quality of life at the end of your life. So, you know, that's why that's, so, you know, get plenty of sleep. Yeah. I know it impedes, um, muscle growth and, all kinds of physical recovery as well. Yes. No, uh, you know, in addition I think to the, cognitive. Yeah. Right. No, um, you know, for, and this is, this is really important for kids and for athletes, right? You know, I think that lots of trainers now recognize that you don't build muscle when you're working out, you actually build muscle when you're sleeping, you know, sort of the workout is, you know, is when you sort of is when you generate the stuff that then gets repaired overnight that yields sort of strong, you know, that yields stronger muscles. Um, so, you know, and this is why people like, you know, LeBron James, right. One of the most fearsome athletes of all time, he sleeps like 12 hours a day because that's what, you know, that's what your body needs when you're performing at that kind of level. Um, so even even when you're that good and that dedicated, your body places demands on you that you really need to pay attention to if you want to keep performing that well. One of the super fascinating things in your book was the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour hours of practice. And you said the study was the study of those folks in the book was cut short because they did not show how much those same people had slept or had used rest to really get the outcomes that they were going for. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the story there is that the 10,000 hours rule has its origins in um, a fairly famous study, famous among social scientists anyway, of um, violinists at a Berlin conservatory. And they were interested in the question originally, you know, is is great performance as a violinist a genetic thing or is it a matter of, you know, just of practice? Is it nature or is it nurture, right? Um, and they came down much more on the nurture side than on the nature, partly because 
you know, the evolutionary benefits of good violin playing are not necessarily that obvious, and it's not clear why that, why that would develop. But they also saw a pretty clear relationship between both the number of hours that the top students performed and the way in which they were practiced and the way in which they practiced. Um, they called it deliberate practice, right? Where you were, you know, you weren't just running scales, but you were focused on particular parts of your performance. You were getting clear feedback. You had very clear goals for improvement during, sort of during those practice sessions. And the people who did that tended to need about 10,000 hours over the course of 10 years in order to become really, really good at, or of, uh, as performers. But they also, it turned out, did two, there were two other things that distinguished them from the average performer. The first was that they actually slept more than, or of, than the students who were in the middle of the pack, partly because Lots of them would take naps in the afternoon. The second was they spent fewer hours total in doing, doing leisure activities, but they were better able to explain why they chose those hobbies and what benefit it brought them. And so, you know, it turned out that it wasn't just the 10,000 hours of deliberate practice that accounted for, or of, uh, for their success. It was also the 12,500 hours of you know, order of, of deliberate rest and 30,000 hours of sleep. The other thing worth noting is 10,000 hours over 10 years is about 1,000 hours a year. And if you assume you take out some time for vacations and, you know, order of in weekends, um, that if you assume people are, are doing that kind of practice 250 days a year, that works out again to about four hours a day, right? That same number that we see Hemingway, Darwin, Beethoven, uh, or of uh, famous mathematicians, et cetera, or of all gravitating, gravitating toward. And so, you know, whether you are, you know, an 18-year-old violin prodigy or you're an 80-year-old, you know, order composer at the height of their powers, that four hours tends to be the, uh, you know, per day, uh, tends to be the number to which, or of around which we all congregate. It's amazing. We talked about flexible work hours, shorter, more focused days, the sleep. The other thing I want to dive into is this deep play and the, the Churchill story mm -hmm. of what that is. Uh, can you expand on that a bit? I thought that was pretty fascinating. Sure. So, you know, one of the things that kind of mystified me when I was writing, uh, researching rest was that a bunch of the people who I was looking at were in really... You know, they were, they were all without, you know, sort of without fail, incredibly ambitious. They were, you know, super dedicated to their work. They often were, you know, in a, in priority discovery races or, you know, they were competing against other people in order to, you know, to make this, this world-class discovery. And yet they would also take, you know, three weeks off and go to the Alps and go climbing or go sailing, or they had some other kind of really in really involved, often physically dangerous, time-consuming hobby that, you know, that also commanded their attention. And that seemed to me like kind of counterintuitive because, you know, why, so the question was, you know, why would you spend, you know, uh, spend your time and energy on something like this when you are, you know, when it might 
you know, it, when there is a potential downside of, you know, of you know, like losing a priority battle, and it turned out that the people, the people explain this, explain their sort of devotion to the sort of to these to these really serious hobbies, in ways that sounded really a lot like sort of their devotion to their work. So you know, even though it was you know. Winston Churchill is a terrific example. You know, he wrote a little book called Painting as a Pastime, wh- where he talks about the value of painting for men of affairs and men of letters. You know, he's writing in what 1920 or so. So you know, it was you know, so it was men. Um, but you know, he talked about painting as being a great complement to you know, in the life of a politician or a business person. Because it, because it was very, very different from the kinds of work that you did in, let's say, a law firm or a bank, right? It's very visual rather than numerical or, you know, or textual. Um, it's also something that took you out, you know, that would take you into the outdoors or you know, to museums, to places of culture. But it offered some of the same kinds of rewards that you know, that public life offered, but in a very different medium. So for Churchill, painting was compelling not just because it was like time out in nature, blah, 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 but rather because painting was like politics. The rewards were the same. You know, you had, in both cases, you needed literally a clear vision of what you were going to do. You had a certain amount of time in which to act. You had to think strategically about how you were going to capture this landscape or or, or this particular scene. And you had a fixed amount of time in which, or of, uh, in which to do it. In all this, it was rather like getting a bill through parliament or, you know, or winning a debate. But... The difference was it was visual rather than verbal. And also, when he was out painting, he didn't have the Labor Party standing behind, you know, behind him saying, right. you know, sort of that tree is the wrong color or trying to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, erase the clouds over in the, over in the top, the top right. So it was all the good stuff uh, that he liked about political, political and public life without any of the downsides. And you see that kind of combination over and over again in serious hobbies. Right, um, scientists who are mountain climbers talk about mountain climbing as climbing as being like science. Right, you are, you know, you're out in the world. It's this really intensive engagement with nature. It requires an incredible amount of focus and concentration. You cannot think about anything else when you're, you know, when you're two thousand feet up, you know, sort of up a up a up a sheer cliff. Um, you have to be really strategic about how you go about solving this gigantic problem. You break it down into a thousand little parts and then you execute. On the other hand, you know, when you're doing scientific research, you can spend a year working on a project and the answer may be totally inconclusive. When you're out on the mountain, either you make it to the top or you don't, right? There are very, very clear rewards. And so it is all the stuff that they like best about science in a very compressed time frame and in a very different context. And if you talk to military people or to CEOs who are mountain climbers, they will they will express the same kinds of of sort of connections between what's rewarding about you know being out on the mountain versus you know sort of their day jobs. They'll just identify different things, right? 
for CEOs, it's about teamwork and collaboration and boldness. You know, of order for military people, it's you know, it's about sort of you've got this incredibly difficult thing that you have to figure out how to execute on, and so it's you know, sort of. But you know, and the mountain has plenty of challenges, but at least you know, sort of, no one shooting back at you. So you know, no matter no matter what field. The challenge is to find that serious hobby that's sort of that appeals, you know, that delivers some of the satisfactions of work at its best um, in a way that is, you know, sort of that is that takes you out of the office and which can help remind you of what you like best about your work when it goes really well which I think gives you both a degree of resilience when things don't, you know, sort of when things don't go so smoothly, um, but which all, you know, which gives you another place in which you can find those satisfactions, um, even when work itself is, you know, sort of uh, work itself presents obstacles or you, you know, or, or you're facing unexpected challenges. So, um, that's the story of deep play and why it and why it really matters. That makes sense. And when when I find it working is when I find or when I embark on a hobby or I'm doing something that's making me very present. And that's mm-hmm. why I think things like mountain climbing or adventure racing or even maybe going to a concert that's more passive is important because you're not thinking about work. Unlike sometimes you could be on vacation sitting on a beach and you can't stop your mind from wandering, thinking about, oh, what's happening in my email inbox or what's going on at the office. And that brings me to uh, another question about vacation, because also you referenced the importance of people taking their vacation. But often you're on vacation, but your mind is on your work. So how do you how do you parlay that? Um, the simple answer is leave your work phone at home, put, you know, put an away notification on your email and as much as possible, do not engage with work while you're on vacation. Um, this is an unpopular theory or, you know, particularly in an era when we carry our offices around in our pockets and, uh, there are pl- and we have plenty of formal and informal incentives to be always on and always connected. But in the long run, this is a bad thing. Humans benefit a lot from having really clear boundaries and having opportunities to switch off from work. And for, you know, and I think that the, that, uh, you know, the evidence is that the better you are able to detach from work, whether it is nights whether it's weekends, whether it's on vacations, the better able you are to work when you are back in the office. And so I think that recognizing that and acting and, you know, and having practices that help you preserve your, uh, both your free time and preserve your sort of your ability to safely be out of the office is really important. Now, you know, if you're in a place that, is, that makes that hard, right? Where you know, that uh, that encourages people to kind of take a sort of heroic view of their contributions to work, or that simply assume that 
you know, yeah, you're going to come in from snorkeling and then, you know, it's no big thing, but you'll, you know, knock off email for, you know, an hour or so. Um, work environments like that are ones where this does become sort of more challenging. But to the degree that it's possible, maintaining those barriers, maintaining those boundaries is going to be good, is going to make for a much better vacation. It's also going to make you sort of uh, make you a better worker when you go back. And, you know, and for most of us, it turns out um, those things that, you know, that are waiting for us in our inbox actually can wait until we get back. Uh, two points on that. I've I actually yeah. had to deactivate one of my direct reports because I knew it was his honeymoon and I knew he wouldn't turn off notifications or email. I, I deactivated him as if he was no longer an employee, which. Wow. Yeah. I, I just had you, to because I was like, I was like, you're not, you're, I know what you're going to do and you're not going to do it. So I, and he had major anxiety around it. I'm like, you know what? You came back and everything, everything was, was okay. This is so important because, you know, I think one of the things that, um, because modeling this kind of behavior and making it possible is one of the most valuable things I think that leaders can do, right? You know, we've sort of, everybody has, you know, clear short-term incentives to try and get the most work out of people. Um, but, you know, at the same time, if you want to, you know, if you want to cultivate people professionally, if you want them to, you know, sort of to see a path where they themselves can be, you know, leaders in a few years, where they can be, you know, sort of uh, where they can be world-class performers. I think that, you know, helping them start to learn the lesson early on that you need to find, you need to find ways to balance that passion that, you know, that, it, that expressing it just in terms of being always on or always in the office is not going to be healthy in the long run. And it's also, you know, and after a few months is also not, is actually going to be counterproductive in the immediate run. That's a really important thing for us sort of, sort of to, sort of to teach to sort of the people who work for us and Sort of, it's important for us to sort of create the conditions that, you know, make it possible for them to put that into, you know, to put that into practice. And so, you know, I think this is this is the first example I've heard of, you know, deactivating someone's email. But yeah. you know, absolutely right, and more power to you. And you know what? When I did that, it made me realize that success, like to be a successful leader is to have your team operate as if you're not there anyway. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you have to be on isn't a good thing. And, and trust me, I spent many years, I, I was an entrepreneur. It's my 10-year anniversary of, of having created a company. It's grown. Very thankful. But for the most part of that 10 years, I thought success was determined by how much I could put in and the output I could generate. And then I realized that success is about the team under me. Can my team operate and can my company operate without me? And and we're we're getting better all the time there. But it that it, it took a while for me to realize that. And I would say that if you are the type of person that is leading a team and you have to be on your phone or you have to be connected, you're not looking at success the right way. That's not you doing a good job. In fact, I'd argue it's the opposite. But I'm just giving you advice to really think about that and reframe it. 
Absolutely right. Now, you know, I think that one of the one of the downsides of of the way that we think about entrepreneurship today in these sort of heroic terms tends to encourage a sense that you are the only person who can solve this problem, or you should be the only person who makes this decision or does this other thing. And that without you, the whole thing, you know, the whole enterprise ought to fall apart. The danger, of course, is that that puts, that's more likely to put you in the position where you actually do burn out and the whole enterprise falls apart. And so, you know, I think that, uh, that, you know, for, the people I look at who move their companies to four-day weeks, one of the things that they are really motivated to do is to change their organization from one in which they are abs- you know, they are absolutely completely critical to one in which, yeah, you know, the founder is never going to be unimportant, but you know, if I get if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, people will know what to do, other people will be able to step up and mm-hmm. You know, and the place will not fall apart completely. And yeah. I think that's a that that's a that is a that is a that's a difficult thing to learn and to sustain these days, but it is absolutely, absolutely critical. So I know we're gonna wrap up in a few minutes. I have, I have two more things for you. One, you wrote a book, The Distraction Addiction in 2013, I think around that time. Mm -hmm. And now things have gotten even worse, like significantly worse. And I look at my children and I often ask this question, but you're like the best person to ask this to. (laughs) I look at my kids compared to how I grew up with the cord on the phone, no real distractions (laughs) in that way. And now everything's a distraction. This this whole idea of just a kid being able to think and daydream and it's kind of gone out the window because all these games are built in an addictive way and they're, you know, that's what they want to do when they get home from school. And for, you know, in some cases that's okay because that's how they escape. How screwed are our children? (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, I think that the, the, the thing, the thing that I, uh, that I focus on is that number one, um, you know, Kids' brains are highly plastic, right? There's this concept of neuroplasticity, which is a fancy way of saying that brains change all the time. And indeed, that's what brains do. So for all of, you know, I think it is perfectly reasonable to be concerned or to think about how your kids spend their time, you know, whether that is, you know, and, you know, the, and this would be true whether they are obsessed about baseball cards or Fortnite, but that, you know, sort of, there is not an awful lot that kids do that completely permanently screws them up. Um, and not a lot of what happens on screens is, you know, sort of, uh, falls into that category, which is not to say that, you know, stuff like wasting time and, or cyber bullying is not an issue, but, um, I think that the sort of, that we don't have to, we don't have to panic if, you know, Sort of, if kids like screens more than you know, sort of more than we do. The other thing is that you know, I think that most of what most of what we're really concerned about is actually, you know, other people and behavior rather than like you know interactions with photons and electrons. That you know that uh, sort of I I worried more about my you know about you know about hum, you know about human interactions that went wrong online with 
sort of uh, sort of with my kids than I did with the impact that screen time would have on cognitive processing. Um, so, you know, and then these days with, you know, the pandemic, I'm afraid a whole bunch of that stuff has just gone out the window. So, yeah. you know, it'll be, it will be interesting to see over the next couple of years, what happens, you know, with kids who have been exceptionally online as opposed to extremely online. Um, but I think that, you know, we should, I would, I would encourage parents to worry a little less about the technology specifically and worry a bit more about the social interaction. The other thing I would point out is that we have this language about how sort of, you know, about how technology is irresistible to kids. Well, you know, any kid who plays sports is perfect, you know, has demonstrates a perfect capacity to put the phone away during basketball practice. Um, you know, if you have a coach who's going to yell at you for like being on Snapchat when, you know, sort of when they should be running stadiums, you know, under the right, in under the right circumstances, kids demonstrate sort of perfect capacities for self-control and sort of, uh, and sort of for, you know, and for putting their devices down. So let's not underestimate their capacity sort of uh, to do that and look for ways that um, incentivize them to do so, you know, when you don't have like someone with a clipboard running after you threatening to make you do extra laps. Well, you made me feel better. Thank you for that answer. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so the everyday worker that's listening to this or the leader or the entrepreneur, whoever it is, what, what's the, the big message? What's the big takeaway? What can they do tomorrow to make their day a little bit better? Right. So I would say that for, you know, sort of the entrepreneur and leader, for everybody that you know, uh, we need to recognize the value of rest and to take it more seriously in our lives and to make, and to recognize that there is great value that can come from, or of, uh, from doing that at scale within organizations. Um, you know, what I would recommend for, sort of, you know, uh, sort of for entrepreneurs or for leaders of, you know, of, of smaller organizations is to think about how you can take the lessons from companies that have moved to shorter weeks and bring those into your own organization. Even if you yourself cannot move to a four-day week yet, those practices of, you know, using technology better, making meetings shorter, ring-fencing time so that people have higher quality focus time as well as social time, those things are going to be valuable no matter what business you're in or what kinds of hours you work. For individuals, I think that recognizing that um, sort of, uh, that there is, there is real value to having better boundaries between work life and personal time and that you're actually a better worker if you're able to detach and you have things like serious hobbies and deep play that can engage you and take your mind off work that, you know, both in the short run and in the long run, those things can be super valuable. Um, and then recognize second that, you know, as important as it is to develop those, those kinds of things internally, that there's also a really big social and organizational dimension to our capacity or opportunities to rest, right? You know, rest and focus depend a lot on what other people expect of us and how other people behave. And so, you know, the, if, you know, I think that we often mistake we often take organizational impediments 
to or of the sort of to rest to work life balance to focus and we translate them into personal ones you know it's not that the system makes it really difficult to do this it's that i don't know how to concentrate hard, you know sort of well enough um in fact we live in you know we live in worlds that sort of conspire to capture our attention to sort of distract us to commodify our attention you know sort of throughout our days whether we're at work or at home and recognizing that this is, you know, this is a hard problem, but it is one that we can learn to solve and we can especially, you know, and that it's especially valu valuable to learn how to do this together as well as through individual practices is what I would, you know, sort of what I, what I would tell individuals. Um, that's not one thing that you do on Monday and then you're done, mm. but it's more like a perspective to take you through the whole week and the next one and the next month and the next year. So that's the advice I would give people. Right on. And if your company offers flexibility, take advantage of it and don't, Absolutely. don't feel like you, you still need to abide by the nine to five or the eight to five or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, thank you for the conversation and all the great advice today and your knowledge on rest. It's, uh, it was, it was awesome. Um, oh. how, how can people find out more about you, Alex? And do you have another book coming out or what are you working on now? So my latest book, which came out last year is called shorter. It's, um, about the global movement to a four day work week. Actually, here's a, here's a copy of it. Um, and so, but you can find me on um, sort of Twitter and other stuff at AskPang, A-S-K-P-A-N-G. Um, I'm also sort of head of a small consulting company called Strategy and Rest. And the, that company URL is strategy.rest. And then finally, I'm also involved in um, a new campaign, which we're ramping up to sort of launch a petition for um, to order for a four day week and for company pledges for companies that, uh, that want to try this themselves, um, a public pledge that will unlock some resources, you know, advice about best practices, et cetera. And that's going to be at, um, four day week dot us and sort of you go and, um, that's going to be launching at, um, the end of June. So that's how, so that's how people can find me. Yeah, definitely. And I'll post all of that in the show notes. And again, can't thank you enough for your time today. And awesome. Good luck with everything. You're on uh, a great mission. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. So great to, great to be on the show. Thank you, Alex, for being an awesome guest on today's show. The conversation really reiterated my thoughts on flexible work schedules and a flexible work week and to ensure people find times when they work best. I can't reiterate enough that focus four hours is so crucial. For me, it's in the morning. I can knock things out in the morning and I try and focus on one major task per day. And I can tell you that I've learned over time that if you do that, you'll get far more done in a day than most people do the whole week chasing down a bunch of tasks. Also, sleep. That it seems to be a theme running lately in these shows, and I know I have more episodes coming up on sleep. I've recently doubled down to try and get better sleep. I even bought some fun devices to see if they make any difference, like the Uller, some sleep buds, a weighted blanket, a nice air filter near my bed for my allergies. 
That all being said, when my nine-year-old comes barreling in my room at 2 a.m., it doesn't matter what devices I have, my sleep is disrupted. But I'd love to hear from you. What do you do or use to get better sleep at night? We are obviously learning together how crucial sleep is and it's something I want to put on the front burner, not the back burner in my life. Nonetheless, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let me know your thoughts as always. Please share this with a friend if you think it could help them. And I hope you have a great week ahead. Remember, you, me, we are not almost there.